This is WMPG 90.9 Southern Maine Community Radio from USM. In the Pocket, a talk show that showcases Mainers who are people of color. Each episode represents a member of the Maine community from art, culture, and business, the earth, wind, and fire of life. Embracing and exploring the Black diaspora and descendants of American slavery through conversation is the foundational concept of In the Pocket. The overall mission of In the Pocket is to create conversational space for all people of color that is documented and celebrated through sharing of life experiences. If you like what you're hearing and want to hear it again, or want to check out our archive of past shows, look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In the Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. Thank you listeners for tuning in to In The Pocket. I'm your host, Flo Edwards, and today our special guest is Valeria Bembry. She has a master's in arts business um, and she has a lot of humanitarianism work that spans three continents. Please. Valeria, introduce yourself. Hi there, Flo. Thank you so much for having me. This is super exciting. Yes, my name is Valeria Missalina Bembry. Um, my pronouns are she, her, hers. And uh, how do I describe myself? Definitely a humanitarian and uh, a curatorial activist and a flanus. So that would be how I would quickly summarize myself in the, the elevator pitch introduction, so to speak. You used a word that I either I didn't hear it correctly or I don't know what that word is. What was the last descriptor you had? Oh, flaneurs. Mm-hmm. So this concept, it's, for, it's the feminine of the flaneur, um, a character, um, from my understanding, developed by uh, Baudelaire, writer and uh, person about town and the flaneur is an observer a person who um, literally walks around town or walks around the world really observing modern life observing the world around them sometimes choosing to interact taking note on various human conditions and that is how i closely identify myself Thank you. Um, I love learning new words. So you told me uh, just recently that you, when you graduated Scarborough High School, you were ready to explore the world. Would you expand on that? Sure. Um, And it was definitely with a lot of help from family and people who definitely saw that that travel spark in me so during my high school years or we'll start with how did I come to Maine and it was when my mom took a position uh, working in what was then the largest hospital in the Middle East and this is in the King Faisal Specialist Hospital in Saudi Arabia so my mom got the job there my father was already living in Maine and so on her way out she dropped me off in Maine and um Yes, I still have all sorts of feelings about that that I'll be working through for the rest of my days. But um, 
because my mom was overseas and I would meet her during the summers in different places. But first of all, we would meet in Florida for sure to hang out with family. But she would also always surprise me with tickets to a foreign country. So we'd meet in Florida and just go traveling. And by the time I got to high school, I was notorious for returning about two weeks into the school year because I was, I don't know, I was in Switzerland with mom or in Saudi Arabia with mom. And the uh, college placement specialist at my school during a time when I was applying for universities and I was actually just thinking, oh, I'll just go to Boston. That's the next biggest city that I can think of at the time um, for university. And I, of course I had my eye on Boston University, but uh, a college placement officer says, you like to travel. I mean, you're always out of the country every minute you can get. Why don't you just go to university overseas? Uh, many options. And so that, that was among the, the first seed. Um, and also around that time, I was definitely feeling a bit lost or stressed out. I just feel like, or constrained even during my time in Maine, I just felt like, okay, it is time to get out into the world. And yes, that's, that's how I bounced. And your first travel outside was to London for university? Oh, no. I've been traveling abroad since I was eight years old. Oh, I mean uh, for school. Oh, for school, yes. Yeah. So, yes, at 18, um, bypassed Boston University and decided to go to Richmond, the American International University in London. It was an American-style system, uh, American-style liberal arts school, but seated in uh, Richmond, Surrey, on the outskirts of London. Um, they also had campuses in uh, a campus in Kensington as well, Kensington, London, down the street from Kensington Palace. And so that was, you know, sight unseen. I just upped and went without a second thought. And it always, you know, when some of my friends or acquaintances would say, oh, you just get up and go to other countries without even checking it out first. Yes, of course. <laughs> Leap in the net will appear. And it seems that you got the travel bug from your mother. Absolutely. And before she found her position overseas, we've we've always had a house full of books and magazines and especially National Geographic. So even before we started traveling extensively, uh, mom always had photography books. We always had an encyclopedia uh, collection and she not only encouraged, but strongly insisted that I open up a chapter, open up a book and learn about a different culture or community or a different place and report back to her I report back to what I've learned and so she has always instilled that global curiosity or general curiosity within me so and that's how I came to this this sort of philosophy as well as nothing human is foreign to me which is technically that phrase is from a uh, He's a Roman philosopher named 
Terentius or Terence, that exact line. But yes, it was instilled from a very young age. With that travel, how did you decide that you wanted to do, I think your first degree was in international relations? Mm-hmm. So that was, I pulled that, um, that major just out of the air or on a whim because between ages 12 and 18, very much focused, or actually beyond 18, but in terms of choosing my major, I was focused on uh, journalism, actually, and becoming a foreign correspondent by Idol was and still is when I'm in poor. So back when I was focused on Boston, you were bust for their communications program. I was focused on that. Anyone who knew me around that time said, oh, Valeria, she's she's going to go study um, communications or journalism. But when I decided, okay, no, I'm not going to go to a, a university in the States or this particular university and program, Richmond did not have um, a broadcasting school. It was definitely much smaller than than BU, and so I had to make a quick decision. And uh, I actually I do remember a family friend who uh, was a foreign correspondent said, "Well, if you want to follow in the footsteps of Amanpour, probably better off just studying international affairs or international relations." And so Richmond had that particular major, and I said, "Well, fine, I will." Um, and then figure out the rest in terms of communications later. So that's how I got into IR. And even though I didn't declare an official minor unofficially, I had studied development studies and women's studies as well. So that's how aspects of humanitarian or international aid work knowledge came into play and also gender studies overall came into play. And I kind of wanted to fast forward to um, your exhibit at Space Gallery. Um, was that a combination of the gender studies as well as your international relations background? Oh, yes. It was everything. It was a culmination of, it was sort of a, a survey experience at that point. So I was the inaugural curatorial fellow at Space Gallery in February 2021, so between February 2021 April, and April 2021, and uh, it was in the project was called Spitting Fire, and word, poetry, and performance, especially the actors who write with fire, um, and in that project, a series of performance and film screening. So the first performance was the drum major instinct, um, which by the way, many of these uh, programs are still, uh, they're recorded. Those that were recorded are still available on the space website. And we had uh, two actors perform um, Martin Luther King's sermon called the drum major instinct. And it also, we had the Kurdish filmmaker present her work as well, Big Village. And um, I'd say one of the, they're all absolute highlights, of course. Um, but also pulling a James Baldwin, where that was a live performance um, of various writers, poets, performers who selected their favorite 
James Baldwin piece or passage and perform that as well. And I want to make sure I cover every every event because it was it was quite the package. There was also the film Revolution from Afar um, by Bentley Brown that was originally screened as part of the International Organization for Migration Global Migration Film Festival in 2020. And so we brought that over here to Maine. It was screened virtually. And then um, just this past summer, the Maine International Film Festival also um, invited the director um, back into Maine for a live screening. And I was able to interview Bentley Brown uh, in person at that point. So this was this past July. So very pleased it had a knock-on effect. Um, and also um, another film featuring uh, Moon Mashar, who I understand is one of your uh, previous guests, um, for A Word Away. So it was uh, quite a substantial packed program that covered elements of migration, place, othering and otherness and activism. It had it had all the flavors of the curatorial activist uh, um, box of chocolate. It sounds like your specialty of chocolates, curatorial activism in art. Mm, definitely, definitely. I call it my passion job, my passion work. Um, I, I joke that all these years since getting those degrees, I, um, the way I've used the knowledge of art history, art practice, um, arts programming has been through passion work. And you know, I've paid my school loans with humanitarian work and education. But uh, also what another, speaking of another aspect of that is while I was in living in Northern Iraq in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, um, much of my art practice time was spent um, painting a refugee camp with Syrian kids who, um, who were housed with their families in a former Saddam era prison. So, you know, lots of blank cement walls and so myself and a group of volunteers would um, bring paints, brushes, explain street art, uh, show examples of street art to these kids and they, they were all for it. And I say that was a significant highlight there. I mean, better than any classroom I can be in, better than any gallery I can be in. That was an absolute delight. Street art. What makes art street art? Definitely on the street, viewed by the public, and it has, you know, in my opinion, it has to be a little bit subversive. I, I feel like it. Uh, even though I one appreciates the council-approved spaces for uh, graffiti artists and muralists to use, which is absolutely wonderful and beautiful, I definitely appreciate the works created sort of in covert spaces that amplify the messages that are often unheard of in between the lines of policy statements or unheard of in um, more sanctioned 
than use of communication. So street art that pops out at you from under street lamps, that I very much appreciate. Having said that though, street art, it has moved um, and I definitely don't fault this or regret this at all. It's moved more towards, I wouldn't say mainstream, but more public acknowledgement and acceptance. And I will say with that, sometimes the messages can get muted and then you don't get your subversive messages there. But at the same time, um, it expands this idea that rather than a sculpture that's been approved in, uh, based in a certain location, this idea that you can find a neglected corner of a building or, or, or a street and um, make your ideas known, make your thoughts known. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I was, and it sounds like your exhibit uh, in 2021 was phenomenal and jam-packed, like you said, um, and that they were inspired to bring back some of the artists that you displayed or shared with us. Yes, the uh, um, revolution from afar. Well, the Speeding Fire Project was at Space Gallery, um, however, Maine International Film Festival independently had reached out to the director. Okay. For the because I, I believe that this this past summer's event for a Myth uh, Maine International Film Festival might have been the first in-person event post pan or we're not post pandemic, but since all the shutdowns and everything. Oh, and, and it was actually, let me correct that. that. It was also through a connection with Indigo Arts Alliance. So I think what had happened before is that definitely someone had viewed the um, revolution from afar um, during the Spitting Fire event. And so word did get around and just by chance, and which I think is absolutely wonderful because when I first saw the, the film and um, yes, and, Revolution Brevard focused on Sudanese Americans. And I thought, well, I mean, this would certainly resonate in Maine, I believe. And so it was through these other networks that Indigo Arts Alliance found out about it. And then they were connected with MIF as well. And so it just resulted in um, this film getting another uh, platform through other organizations. Um, that was basically how that film was able to come back to Maine. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, so currently you have said that your passion work is where you have the bulk of your education in. Um, do you see yourself going back to school for anything else? Certainly. For what, I'm not sure. So for my curatorial studies, I tend to still do that independently and remotely piece by piece as I go along. So I've completed a few courses through the Node Center for Curatorial Studies and the Node Center is based in Berlin. One day I'll show up there in person, but um, great series of programs online. And however, for another master's or even a, you know, a PhD is 
not ruled out, but for second masters, I'd probably stick and stick with the humanitarian area. So I'm looking at refugee protection and forced migration because uh, ultimately I will still operate in both of these spaces regardless. Thank you. Uh, when you said oh, forcing, oh, sorry, you cut off. I didn't realize you were still talking. Continue. Oh, <laughs> I can't hear you. Uh, where did I lose you? Um, I think it was when you were talking about uh, the masters and not doing a PhD. Oh, I, I haven't ruled out a PhD. Okay. Just not ready for it tomorrow or anything but I will I will still operate at the intersection of creative practice and humanitarian practice as well because um, I can definitely read all the policy papers I am very much uh, a bookish person however I in order to communicate the sense of urgency on humanitarian matters, including climate change and all, and getting people to really understand. I feel the area I can operate in is communicating through arts and creativity. So promoting works and artists who do focus on these matters or who have backgrounds in uh, as refugees or in migration, whose creative practice either communicates with that or doesn't it's just maybe part of just that person's identity so i'll always look for ways to platform and showcase uh creative events or exhibitions that focus on those matters and with it i think it's important for me to even delve in these areas rather than because what can ha also happen an individual who has the creative interest and background, but not the technical background and experience in humanitarian work, will end up with trauma porn. Yeah, look at these well-lit, polished photographs of people in boats. And that's a tra travesty. So I'm always balancing the two, the two areas of understanding the language of arts, practice, and creative, um, communities at the same time the the role of humanitarian work and also there are definitely elements of neo-colonialism in aid work as well and basically speaking these two languages in this work and I always um, have thought to myself how interesting would it be to be I don't know first humanitarian curator for example the one whose focuses creating these outlets and events that highlights these issues through the medium of arts practice with the knowledge as well of how how one can be part of it how one can support aid efforts how one can think a little bit more expansively or a lot more expansively about migration because um, we definitely still sitting in these scare tactics of scary migrants and everything and our immigration is bad and that is absolutely not the case of anything in a country such as the u.s we do have a massive responsibility to um, acknowledge 
harms committed in countries where people are forced to flee. And um, and I find that artists and performers who do speak on, on this are very adept at um, creating that language that we need in order to learn about our responsibilities, human beings. Well said. For some reason, oh, I've been reading a lot about American slavery and hearing the refugee and forced migration definitely kind of makes me think about American slavery, even though it wasn't refugee per se. Um, I would go as far as to say that um, our ancestors, people who were brought over from in the African continent were essentially were trafficked. They definitely were not, they were not refugees. They were not seeking to come here in 1619 and beyond. Um, they were not, uh, what, what, what did these, um, there was a textbook in Texas that wanted to frame this as, oh, involuntary servitude, something absolutely ridiculous. No, these are traffic people. So I just wanted to know if you had done any work, because um, a lot of the work that you do humanitarian-wise is current, but if you had ever done anything looking back at um, descendants of American slavery and their art practices. I have not, but that is definitely something I could and should do. It that um, my whole focus has been, for the most part, outside these borders. <laughs> um, it, it wouldn't hurt to uh, look inward a bit more. <laughs> right on. Well, uh, Valeria, thank you. Sorry. I feel like I said that wrong, so I'm going to say it again. Um, Valeria, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Um, I always like to let the listeners know how they can reach you. What's the plug? Oh, sure. And it was an absolute pleasure to, to speak with you as well. Thank you again for inviting me. And I can be found on Instagram at we are not a muse, all one word. If you like what you've heard and want to hear it again, or want to check out our archive of past shows, Look for us at inthepocket.captivate.fm or search In The Pocket on iTunes or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at In The Pocket and give us a follow so you never miss a show. Time for some PSAs. The Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project, known as I-LAP, is Maine's only nonprofit immigration legal services organization. ILAP has helped people from over 100 countries gain legal status. To see if Immigrant Legal Advocacy Project can help you or someone you know, get more info online at ilapmaine.org. And that's I L A P M A I N E.org. Also, Wabanaki Reach supports the self-determination of Wabanaki people 
through education, truth-telling, restorative justice, and restorative practices in Wabanaki and Maine communities. For information about understanding colonization, the Truth Commission, and more, go online to mainewabanakireach.org. M-A-I-N-E-W-A-B-A-N-A-K-I-R-E-A-A-C-H dot org. Creative Portland supports the creative economy through the arts by providing essential resources, by fostering partnerships, and by promoting Portland's artistic talents and cultural assets. As an arts agency, Creative Portland supports economic development efforts by strengthening and stimulating Portland's workforce, creative industries, and enterprises. For more information, it can be found at creativeportland.com. Hey Huskies, did you know that USM has a food pantry on campus? The Campus Food Pantry is a free resource open to current USM students, faculty, and staff. There is no proof of financial need required, just your USM ID. The Campus Food Pantry offers food, personal and household items, and offers walk-ins. You can pre-order online at usm.main.edu, search for Food Pantry, or visit the USM Campus Food Pantry at 102 Bedford Street in Portland or in the UCU Den in the Brooks Student Center in Gorham. Bring your current USM ID. Visit usm.main.edu and search for Campus Food Pantry for more information on how to access or support the USM Food Pantry.